I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Our show is going to be a little different this time. We're not in front of a live audience. We're recording at the Stitcher Studios in Midtown Manhattan. And instead of inviting people up on stage to share their fascinating facts, we are taking phone calls from around the country. And joining me today is an actual, real radio host and TV host, Michael Smirkanish. Michael, so nice to have you here. Nice to be here. Thank you, Stephen. Let's see what we know about you so far, sir. We know that you host the Michael Smirkanish program on Sirius XM and Smirkanish on CNN. We know that you have interviewed every single former living president. What about the current one? You've interviewed uh, Donald Trump? No, he. Uh, I'm. I'm dead to him. Okay. Well, Michael, uh, we know also that you practiced law for ten years before going into broadcasting. We know that you like your politics roughly down the middle, and we also know. I'm not sure why, but that you own a miniature donkey farm. Is that true? Well, I don't know that I own a miniature donkey. First of all, where are you getting this information? I can't tell you that. I may or may not have a few (laughs) Sicilian donkeys in the backyard. That is true. Um, Maybe we'll get into that later. We We also know that you posed nude once for Philadelphia Magazine, for a Philadelphia Magazine profile, and I am looking at the photo right now. There you go. What do you think of that? I gotta tell you, I think you look like a a male model of a certain sort. I have no idea why I did that. He asked me, and I and I, I think I was calling his bluff, the photographer. He said, can, can you go out into your driveway and will you pose naked? And I said, from the front or from the back? And he said, from the back. And I said, okay. I have to say, you have a really nice driveway. <laughs> so, Michael, that's what we know about you, which is not nothing. Tell us something we don't yet know. Well, if we're, gonna, if we're going to... to stick with the exposure theme, then I guess it's it's long been a part of my my DNA because I was suspended from junior high school for flicking a moon. <laughs> now, when I say this to my own kids, they're, they're interested, and then they say, what exactly is flicking a moon? Is flicking the same as hanging a moon? Exactly. What we called it, and that basically means pulling your pants down and showing someone your butt? We had a closed-circuit television system in my junior high school. Oh. It, was, it, was a, it was a public school, but it was sophisticated. It had just opened, and I was in gym class, and they were filming a commercial for the upcoming gym show. And the trick was to be able to do a, a, a flip from the mini tramp and flash your fanny at the same time. Uh. Gave them a taste of that and was suspended for a day. Nice. So, Michael Smirkanish... Radio and TV host and a longtime exposer of his own butt, then, (laughs) we should say. All right. Very glad to have you here, Michael. Um, Here's how Tell Me Something I Don't Know will work today. Guests will come on the line to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and eventually we'll pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, we've got our good friend A.J. Jacobs with us today as our live fact checker. Hello, A.J. Hello, Stephen. A.J., for those of you who don't know, is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically, which CBS just picked up as a comedy series. His new book is called It's All Relative, for which A.J., I'm told, you staged the world's largest family reunion, yes? That is true. That is true. Where was this reunion? How big was it? Well, this was in Queens, New York, and there were about 4,000 people in Queens, but then we had 40 parties around the world, so about 10,000 people. It was a loose interpretation of family reunion because my new book is about how 
we're building a family tree of everyone on earth. We had Sister Sledge singing <laughs> We Are Family. That uh, We had an imam, a rabbi, a minister, a Frederick Douglass impersonator. So it was very, very strange. You didn't have Michael Smirconish, did you? <laughs> and I will say, I feel now much closer to Michael because I too posed nude for uh, a magazine. I was in Esquire magazine. But but first or front first? I actually covered all the naughty bits. It was yeah. one of those tasteful things. Yeah, yeah. Well, wait a minute. Mine was tasteful too. Did you not look at the picture Stephen showed you? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> all right, AJ, Michael, so glad to have both of you here. It is time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Let's get on the line. Our first guest, I'm told we have Peter Salib. Is that right, Peter? Uh, that's right. I'm here. Very good. Okay, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Uh, okay, well, I am an attorney, and I currently work as a law clerk on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Which is in Chicago, Correct. It is in Chicago. Some of the judges sit in Indiana or Wisconsin, but the, the, the hearings are in Chicago. Okay, so what can you tell us? Uh, so our current primary form of criminal punishment, which is, of course, prison, is unnecessarily socially costly. So in addition to the cost that people usually think about, the cost of confining convicts, prison destroys wealth by preventing prisoners from working in high-value jobs. So instead of locking people up, we should have them literally pay their debts to society by working and then transferring the wealth they earn to either their victims or maybe the government. Mm. Michael Smirkanish, that sounds right up your alley. I'm waiting for Peter to distinguish between those who are incarcerated for acts of violence versus your conventional white-collar criminal, but maybe he's not going to do that. I think there are probably certainly some criminals uh, who are uh, you know, hopelessly dangerous. Uh, at the very least, you'd think, um, you know, kind of psychopathic serial killers. Uh, but I don't think it's beyond reason to think that at least some criminals who are convicted of violent crimes would be unlikely to uh, commit those same kinds of crimes if they were subject to some kind of continuous uh, monitoring and other kinds of controls, but outside of the prison context. So is your argument kind of that we imprison too many people both for their own good and for society's own good and that you want to do something about that? Or is the argument more specific to the prisoner end and that you think that we're just actually wasting good humankind on locking them up when maybe some or even a majority of them could do something more productive? Yeah, you can think of it this way. If uh, someone commits a crime that harms someone else, uh, one of the goals of the criminal law is the punishment that disincentivizes that crime. And when we put people in prison, there are a lot of ways we're kind of imposing costs that disincentivize the crime. Prison is not a very nice place, and you're you're confined as far as your movement goes, and you don't get to spend time with your loved ones. But another uh, of the costs imposed on the prisoner by sending them to prison is, well, you don't get to work if you're in prison, and you don't get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. If a prisoner can't work, they can't earn money to put their victims in a place they would have been in uh, had the crime not been, been committed. So by putting someone in prison instead of having them transfer some of the fruits of their labor to, say, their victims, we're actually taking money out of the victim's pocket as well as the prisoner's. And how is this different from prisoners who do work now? Like, you know, license plates, I just looked it up, and they are actually made by prisoners. So how is your proposal different from that? So prisoners in federal prison and, and also in many states uh, are subject to some work requirements. But my proposal has uh, maybe two distinctions from those requirements. First of all, 
there are a bunch of exceptions. Um, so while uh, in theory, most or all, say, federal prisoners are required to work while they're incarcerated, in fact, relatively few of them do. Um, and furthermore, for the ones that do, they end up working in relatively low-value occupations. Partially that's reflected in their wage, which ranges from one or, or two to a few dollars an hour. Uh, and you can see that partially in the reports of the value that those prisoners add annually to the prison's bottom line, which is in the range of just a, a, a very few thousand dollars a year. So people are working in prison. They're pretty low weight. I just looked up some of them, and there's uh, they make picnic tables. In South Carolina, prisoners stitched a Victoria's Secret lingerie in uh, in the 1990s. Which but, seems but Peter, like... am I understanding you're you're not saying that they would be relegated to those mundane sort of tasks, but that they would be perhaps wearing an ankle bracelet, but working in the private sector? Is that the proposal? Yeah, that's that's exactly what we would want. You know, instead of um, people all working in in relatively low value jobs, what we ideally want is for people to be working. Uh, in the highest value jobs that they're able, maybe with the caveat that, for example, if you were uh, sent to prison for a financial fraud, we don't want you working as a financial advisor. Um, But subject to some limitations, we want people working in the highest value employment they can so that to the extent possible, they can pay their debt to society uh, with with money they've earned instead of money that they forego by being in prison. Right. But let me, I mean, let me just ask the question that makes me sound like an even more horrible person than I am. But haven't many of the people who end up in prison essentially declared already that they're not willing or able to do exactly what you want them now to do? You know, there are people who are in prison for all kinds of reasons. And there are plenty of people who are in prison now who, who while they may have committed a crime, also held down perfectly serviceable modes of employment before, before they were convicted. So it's not as if everybody who's in prison has turned to a life of crime to uh, support themselves to the exclusion of working in, in a legally permissible employment. I'd love to know what evidence there is that this idea is viable. Are there other places that you can point to that have had success with this kind of thing, whether other countries or parts of the U.S., et cetera, et cetera? The the way that I I think of the incentive structure is actually, it's less to do with examples that we can point to else in the world and and more to do with kind of the broader picture of of how deterrence uh, would, would have to work under this system. Uh, and furthermore, the the expected cost of of a given punishment has to be discounted by the probability of detection. So, so in fact, you know, penalties have to be relatively high to right. deter, deter people. Right. And the right. upshot is, even if we have people work, they can probably pay some or even a high portion of their you know quote unquote debt with actual money earned. But it might be that we would still have to impose some other kind of non monetary punishment. Um, mm. It could be. You know, something as silly as there there are judges who are, um, you know, making people sleep in dog houses or, you know, getting very bad haircuts or holding signs, you know, in public about the crimes they committed. It could be that. Or if if you're a person who thinks that deterrence needs to be harsher, you can you can pick something else. But if you think of, you know, deterrence as a a total package costs imposed on the the person who committed the crime, uh, work and money transfer can be part of it. 
Uh, and then the rest will have to be sort of, quote-unquote, paid in the form of some other, some other cost. You mentioned the social cost at the outset, and I'm now wondering what would it take to administer your out-of-the-box idea? Who's going to keep tabs on all of the, the former prison population and also do the accounting of exactly what now is, is going to be the ledger for uh, their payment of their debt to society? Um, that's a good question. We certainly will not be able to eliminate these costs. The best we can do is hope to hold them steady or reduce them. One thing that is so expensive about prisons is they require lots of sort of physical capital, you know, in the form of actual giant institutions that are not only housing institutions, but secure housing institutions, right? You can't just build a regular apartment block. You have to build an apartment block that people can't easily escape. And that's very expensive. And we also have um, pretty high uh, human capital costs associated with prison. You need lots of prison guards and administrators. um, uh, That's all pretty expensive. The world I have in mind is still has costs, but maybe it has fewer. So, you know, we have very cool technology now. It's very cheap. Uh, And you might think that by uh, outfitting people who are out in the world, serving their sentence, going to work, transferring their money, uh, by outfitting them with, you know, the uh, technology requisite to track their location at all times, uh, maybe be able to hear, see what's going on uh, in their life at all times. You could get away with many fewer uh, man hours required than are required to in-person monitor prisoners in prison. And Peter, just a practical question. What what kind of job, say, would Bernie Madoff be Mm. fit to do? Um, the one thing we don't want him doing is running uh, an in- investment fund. Right. So you you might want him to stay away from a number of kind of fiduciary white collar jobs. Uh, but who knows? He, he's an older guy, but maybe he's a, a talented carpenter. Mm. AJ, uh, letting prisoners work off their penance essentially. What do you know? Well, I know that prison labor has been around for centuries. Uh, My favorite is the British were famous for their notorious treadmills in the 1800s. And this was prisoners would actually walk for up to 10 hours a day, uh, grinding grain or just turning a wheel. And in 1902, treadmills were finally outlawed as cruel punishment, uh, though they are still legal at your local Equinox. So you can go, (laughs) even if you don't murder anyone, you can go work off your debt. Thank you, AJ, and thank you, Peter Sleeb, for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Thanks for having me. Let's bring our next guest on the line. Hi, Julia Maranto. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. This is Stephen. We've got Michael Smirkanish and AJ Jacobs. Uh, tell us what you do first. I'm a museum educator based in New York City. A museum educator. Um, tell us something we don't know, please. Okay. So many pre-Raphaelite paintings were created with a secret ingredient, ground-up Egyptian mummies. Many pre-Raphaelite paintings were created with a secret ingredient of ground-up Egyptian mummies? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, the pre-Raphaelites, they were kind of modernist troublemakers in 1800s England, yeah? So was the was the mummy paint some kind of a statement, or was it just uh, material that was useful? It was material that was useful. So um, up until the 1960s, uh, feline and human remains were used to make mummy brown. What's the quality 
that the mummified remains brought to the painting? So it's kind of in between a burnt umber and a raw umber, um, and it has like a paste-like quality. Uh, apparently, it's unaffected by damp and quote-unquote foul air. So it's a, um, it's a texture thing or a color thing or some of both? Some of both. So apparently it was good for glazes and shadowing and like fleshy tones. Where do they get the mummies? So they were imported out of Egypt. But wait, I thought, so wait, I don't know much about mummies, but I always assumed that mummies were on the rare side. So you're just saying there are all these mummies that they're shipping over from Egypt to grind up to make paint? Were they, are they not as... Uh... Yeah, I think in the 16th to 18th century, they were a little bit more plentiful. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there were a bunch of tomb raiding art supply dealers who would just go grab mummies and ship them over and grind them up for paint. Do you know anything about that part of the story? Um, I don't know about the taking of the corpses. Um, I know more about like the art side. Uh, Very convenient but... that you don't know anything about the taking of the corpses. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> there, there has to be a hell of a story here as to who was the first to recognize the properties in mummified remains for painting. Mummified remains were used for like a whole host of different things. So like they would put them into like lotions and potions and creams and people would drink them. I think because it's mummia, it's made out of hydrocarbons. Um, so that's what gives it the color but also it's supposed to be good for you in a kind of bad for you kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) And I did, uh, I did just look it up and in the middle ages, it was huge. They would drink all of these potions of mummies. Mm -hmm. Sounds like something Gwyneth Paltrow might bring back Mm. for goop. I do know that a lot of early medicine or what we've, what we think of now as medicine was either human or animal remains or feces even. So you're Mm -hmm. just saying this was yet another use, right? For the paint. Yep. Just totally normal. Um, Apparently until about 1908, it was still in a medical catalog. Are there any famous paintings that you could point to, something that would conjure up a vision in our minds where you'd say, that painting has mummified remains in it? Um, Okay, so look to the paintings of Edward Byrne Jones. All right, I'm looking him up. Julia, while he's looking that up, how, how would the painter actually utilize the mummified? Is this something that would be on your palette? Would this be within the spectrum of your colors? And, and oh, and over here are the mummified remains. Initially, it was handmade. So, but like, with white pitch and myrrh and Egyptian mummies. And then tubes of paint became more popular. You could add these ingredients to oil and create, like, this creamy, viscous mummy brown. I'm actually looking at a painting by Edward. That is some lovely color. It's some good color, although mummy brown didn't really last that long because it's made from fat and ammonia and muscle, so uh, there are complaints of it cracking. Is there any kind of a black market today for mummified ingredients? <laughs> I mean, I, I, if, I, if I could, I'd go to Craigslist right now and see if anybody's selling any, but are there those materials out there? To my knowledge, I, I don't think so. I know that you can get such oddities, but um, I don't think for making paint. There was a very tight denial, I have to say. To my knowledge, I don't believe so. Yeah, AJ, ground up mummy as part of paint. Anything more to add to that? Well, I did. Uh, Julia mentioned that people would drink it as a potion in the Middle Ages, but you run out of mummies after a while. So there was a big trade in people getting uh, the executed criminals and pretending those were mummies. Ah, yeah. So you might see that in some of the paintings. 
Also, Julia mentioned that there were feline mummies. And I just looked it up and there were cat mummies because the Egyptians uh, revered cats. But they also made mummies for of the mice so that the cats would have something to eat in the afterlife, oh, which I thought sweet. was very considerate. Very good, Julia. Thanks for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Nice to talk to you. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's bring in our next guest, whose name I'm told is Constanza Ocampo Raider. Constanza, you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi there, it's Stephen Dubner. I've got Michael Smirkanish and AJ Jacobs checking your facts. I understand you have something to tell us. It's interesting. First of all, why don't you tell us what you do? Yes, currently I'm a professor of anthropology at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Okay, so tell us something awesome that we don't know, please. Okay, so eating a kitty may sound horrifying to a North American audience. Wait, wait, wait. Constanza, eating a kitty, you said? Eating a kitty cat? Yes. Wow, okay. Michael, have you ever eaten a cat? Not as far as I know, but I've been to some pretty dicey places, so one never knows. So you were saying eating a kitty may sound horrifying, and I I guess we'd agree, but proceed, please. Yes. However, among the Afro-Latino community in Peru, cat dishes actually hold special meaning. Over the past couple of years, cat eating there has become controversial, and there have been a series of animal rights campaigns that have been resorting to racist narratives to try to ban the practice. And these narratives, unfortunately, are contributing to the continuous discrimination and marginalization of the Afro-Peruvian community in that country. Wowzer. Okay, let me get my head around this. So cats are eaten in the Afro-Peruvian community, you're saying, and that has led to some controversy. Can you tell us where that objection is coming from? Yeah, it's coming from, like, straight animal rights campaigns. So they are not happy with the eating of what is perceived as a pet. I'm curious as to why is it the Afro-Peruvian community? What, what is it that's special about those folks as opposed to all people in Peru? You see, that's really what is interesting about this research, because the Afro-Peruvian community has always been already marginalized in that country. So they have developed a whole series of different cultural traditions to sort of, you know, build community, build remembrance, and, you know, feel at home in a place that often doesn't necessarily let them feel at home. And cat eating was one of those traditions because cats to them is a living being that is very able to survive, to deal with resilience, and it also does it with grace. So they identify with the cat, and so by eating it, it's a way to sort of build community between them. Do non-Afro-Peruvians eat cat? No, absolutely not. And that's what's interesting because Peru is going through this culinary reawakening and they're trying to market their food here, there, and internationally. And they're okay with eating other pets like guinea pigs, but they absolutely do not think it's correct to eat cat. Well, I will say I just Google and there there is cat eating around the world. So you don't have to go to Peru. There's China, Vietnam, and the indigenous people of Australia. So... It's not McDonald's, but you can get it other places. What occurs to me is the fact that we have a miniature dachshund. Mr. Lucy is his name. And this is the fourth of our dogs in the last decade or so. We love them all. We treat them like kings. If if reincarnation exists, you want to come back as a dog (laughs) in my house. But, Stephen, just this week, I was sitting there with him at my feet eating a burger Mm. and thinking— 
nothing of it. Why are we so selective in our indignation? Frankly, what separates the, the cow from the cat, from the dog, from the fish? I actually have a theory that it's ugly animals. We're allowed to eat ugly animals, like a cow and a chicken. But if they're cute and they're attractive, then then they're off limits. What about the bunny? Oh, because some people eat, the, eat bunny. the bunny. Yeah. Eat the bunny. Some do. Um, Constanza, okay, so you, you raise the interesting and important points about culture and politics and uh, reputation and so on, but I just want to know about the the food, the taste. So, have you eaten the kitty? Oh yes, and it's actually there's two things. One is there's a lot more meat than you would think, so it's actually pretty meaty. Two, it does not taste like chicken at all. It actually tastes like a <laughs> dark meat. So that's a. And three, it's absolutely delicious. And every time I've eaten it, I've always been accompanied with somebody who swears up and down that they will not taste it. But as soon as you try it. As you smell it, they just love it. It's made with a cilantro-based sort of, you know, sauce, and it's slow-cooked. It's marinated in milk and vinegar overnight. It's absolutely delicious. Um, where do the cats that are eaten come from? Are they one-time pets? Are they raised for eating? Are they off the street? No, they're feral. They're off the street. They're caught, and they prefer to eat um, cats that they know live on the tops of roofs because that way they know that they're not eating too much garbage on the ground. Do people who are Afro-Peruvian nevertheless have cats as pets? Yes. They sometimes, do they eat their own cats? No, not really. They also, they, uh, they distinguish between what's your cat and what's your pet and what's, you know, a proper cat to eat. So you will often go elsewhere to find a cat to be able to eat it. Reindeer is, is as far as I have pushed this envelope. In yeah. Norway, uh, I had reindeer once, and, and that was it. Otherwise, my diet has just been consisting of the basics. And how was reindeer? Did it taste I, like... Uh, taste like cat? <laughs> <laughs> it tasted... Right. It tasted like all other meat, I think, that I had eaten. I would not have been able to distinguish if I didn't know. Constanza, can I ask you about the uh, nutritional profile or content of cat? I tried to Google it here, nutrition cat food, and I got what you feed to cats, not eating cats. So are they um, pretty, you know, fine, good for you as long as they're not eating a bunch of toxins? No, I mean, they're okay as long as they're clean. It's the equivalent of eating rabbit, which they don't have a lot of fat. They're not as robust as, say, you know, a, a pig or something that has more fat. Can I ask, is, is there any other animal that Afro-Peruvians eat that we wouldn't think to, to ever consume? Oh, yeah, that's what's interesting about my research is that if you look at what Peruvian national cuisine is today, the type of cuisines that they are sort of bringing and sharing to the world, a lot of them have very strange ingredients like heart meat, which is made out of anticucho, so they use stomach lining. And initially, that was the sort of leftover food that the black population would eat, and slowly it made it into the national menu. So ironically today, what they see is quintessentially Peruvian actually stemmed from food that was refuge food initially. So cat is just the latest manifestation of them sort of eating what the white population doesn't want to eat. Are there any um, holidays or festivals or anything at which cat meat is, you know, the featured course? Yes, there's one special holiday, which is the Santa Eugenia um, festival, which happens in September, and that's where it was banned. So they bring out this saint. She's a black saint from Ethiopia that she's venerated by a lot of Afro-Latino populations in Latin America. And during that festival, they eat cats um, sort of overtly. And that's what's been targeted by these sort of animal rights campaigns. 
I, a question I'm sure we've all wanted to know, Michael, our whole lives, and I, I think Constanza is maybe the best person I've ever met who could answer it, which is, is there truly more than one way to skin a cat? No, there's just one way to skin a cat. <laughs> I mean, if you want to make it all choppy, I guess you can do it many ways. But there's an easy way and there's a messy way. So there are two ways, basically. <laughs> two ways to skin the cat. That's what we should change it to. Okay. The good way. Good to the know. The good way and the bad way. So, Constanza, this is so interesting. So, is it, is it, so it's a kind of standoff or at least a spat, a cat spat between the Afro-Peruvian community and the animal rights community. I'm just curious, is the animal rights community in Peru or is it uh, muckrakers who come in and denounce yeah, it? No, it's mostly in Peru, but they have a very, they, they follow the similar lines as PETA. What's interesting is that they're targeting this particular tradition, which belongs to the Afro-Peruvian community, and not other traditions. So they're not targeting guinea pig eating. They're not targeting llama eating or alpaca eating. They're targeting the black community because they see them as the most targetable. So interesting. A.J. Jacobs, um, we've heard a lot of facts. Uh, Constanza sounds to me like she knows what she's talking about. She answered every question we threw at her. What more can you well, tell I us? Well, I did just look it up in it, and cat and dog eating is legal in the United States. In 44 states. AJ, thank you. And Constanza, thanks so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was great. It's time for a quick break. When we return, more guests. We will make Michael Smirconish tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future live show, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Adam Conover. You might know me from my TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, but now I'm going deeper as the host of the new podcast, Factually, out now on Earwolf. We dive in with exceptional experts from professors to Pulitzer Prize winners to reveal shocking truths from around the world of human knowledge. And, you know, I do my best to make it funny. It's an investigative comedy podcast for curious people who never stop asking questions. Factually is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker is AJ Jacobs. And today in the co-pilot seat is none other than Michael Smirkanish. Michael, we've got a, a round of uh, what we call lightning round questions written especially for you. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, name a TV politics show that you've not appeared on. Uh, most of them I have appeared on. How about this? I've done no cameos. I'd like to do a cameo. <laughs> Just a little snippet somewhere that would be fun. But the conventional shows, I've been fortunate in appearing on virtually all of them. Let it be known to the production universe that Michael Smirconish is available for cameos. He also does nudes, as we've learned earlier. So uh, he'll do pretty much anything you need him to do. You'll have to pay me scale for the latter, but okay. And, <laughs> uh, no, and no HD if I'm doing that. <laughs> I should note that Naked Butt picture was a few years ago. Exactly. Have, have you compared? Do you, do you look in the mirror and see how you hold up to your portrait? I'll tell you something. I'm going to fat shame myself because the older I get, the harder it is to keep off the weight. But in that particular picture, the love handles are not so evident. Michael, who's your number one dream guest for your show and why? It had been for a long, long time, Larry David. Mm -hmm. uh, and Larry David has still never been on, on my, my radio oh, program, okay. but I I got to meet him. I still would like to get him. I'd like to spend a little time with Roger Waters. Mm. Roger Waters, who was one of the founders of Pink Floyd, uh, have listened to the music for a long, long time, have, have disagreed 
greatly over the years with some of his politics, warmed to him in other respects, I think that would be a good conversation. Hmm. You've been, uh, I would argue, famously bald for quite a while now. Any story behind that? Uh, my wife's, I think, 40th birthday at a restaurant, probably had one cocktail too many, walked out of the restaurant. The place where she would get her hair cut was directly across the street. She said, oh, Maurice is still in. I'm going to go in and make an appointment. We went in together, and when we came out, one of us was bald. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we know, Michael Smirconish, that long ago you ran for the Pennsylvania State Legislature True. and lost by fewer than 500 votes. 419 <laughs> votes. I've since located 236 of those people. <laughs> Thank you, AJ. And, and, and had a word with them? <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the better things that ever happened to me, both running, running and, and losing. losing. <laughs> because yeah. why? Why? In retrospect, why are you happy you didn't I win? never learned as much uh, as I uh, learned about people as the process of knocking on 5,000 doors and, mm. and walk, or being invited in, not in all cases, I can tell you, but but being invited into people's homes and and engaging in conversations that were just totally unfiltered. Mm. It was a great life experience. We heard earlier that you uh, keep miniature donkeys in your backyard. We also heard earlier that Afro-Peruvians like to eat cats. So <laughs> let me ask you, how do your little donkeys taste? I would never know and uh, and would never presume to want to eat one of the donkeys, whether they're mine or, or yours. Mm. That's where I draw the line at donkey. How's that? <laughs> I'm Michael Smirconish, thanks for taking our, our questions today. Let's get back to our game. Let's bring in our next guest. His name, I'm told, is Jonathan Waldman. Jonathan, you on the line? I am. I'm right here. Nice to talk to you. What do you do, Jonathan, and where do you do it? I am a nonfiction author, and I'm in Colorado. A nonfiction author, do you have some particular topic areas that you're fond of? I think I should have been an engineer. I wrote a book two years ago called Rust, and I just finished a book about the 10-year development of a brick-laying robot named Sam. Wowzer, both sound really interesting. Okay, what do you have for us today? Tell us something we don't know. So I don't know how you get your caffeine fix or if you browse the energy drink selection at the grocery store, but every year more than a thousand new energy drinks come onto the market because no. everyone- wait a minute. So I know that's not what you want to tell us, but more than a thousand new energy drinks on the market every year? Everybody wants to be the next Red Bull. But the curious part is that some of them end up in glass bottles and some of them end up in aluminum cans. And I wondered if you had any idea why. Some energy drinks end up in aluminum cans, and some energy drinks end up in glass bottles. Michael Smirconish, are you a big energy uh, energy drink drinker? I have drinker? never had an energy drink. I'm frightened of energy <laughs> drinks, and you can you can attest to the fact that I that I have a a decaf coffee in front of me. Was that on purpose? When I did morning drive radio, and this goes back five years, I would probably drink a half gallon of black caffeinated mm. coffee. And mm. then all of a sudden a switch went off in my body and I could no longer tolerate mm. caffeine. So, you know, I'm at a convenience store and I'm looking at the Red Bull and I'm terrified of it. I've never <laughs> had one in my life, but but it has to, it, glass versus aluminum has to have something to do with a corrosive impact on aluminum versus glass. That's exactly it. So I, I figured there must be something going on. And uh, I actually signed up for can school which was just down the road at the Ball Corporation. Wait, 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 slow down. You have so, you're just <laughs> dropping these little nuggets. What's Can School? Can School is an industry program put on for about 25 years. Um, about 1,000 people, I think, have been through the program. Uh, and I sort of snuck my way in. It's run by the Ball Corporation. Aren't they jars, though? 
Ball used to make jars. They got out of that business. And now they got into cans. Cans are a bigger moneymaker than satellites. I'm full of facts. Cans are bigger than satellites? They make both of them. Oh, really? The Ball Corporation that used to make our little jars that we'd put jelly and jam in? But I still buy them. They must, they must still be available. But we use those as our drinking glasses in our house. They're still sold, but they're under license to another company. Aha. Uh-huh. All right, so wait a minute. You went to can school at the Ball Corporation to learn what? To learn about the humble aluminum can, because I figured there's got to be something we do to keep stuff like Coke from corroding through a piece of aluminum not much thicker than a piece of paper. And I found out that if we didn't line cans with plastic, a can of Coke would corrode in three days. Hmm. You know, it's funny you say that, because when I was a kid, my mom did not allow us to have sugar in the house. And uh, she would have one bottle of Coke, though, that she would keep around. And she said it was to dissolve rusty bolts when she had one. And I always thought that was BS and that she just liked to swig the Coke and that uh, that was her excuse for keeping it. You're saying that would Coke really dissolve rust on a bolt, though? It would do. The phosphoric acid would work fine. Well, I, I did actually just look this up on Snopes because I had heard as a kid that Coca-Cola dissolves teeth. If you put a tooth in overnight, it'll yeah. dissolve. Snopes, the website says that is not true. Hmm. It would take longer than a night. Uh, and actually that orange juice has more acid, so you can dissolve a tooth more quickly in orange juice. So, Jonathan, Coke, you're saying, would corrode through an unplastic-lined aluminum can in three days, is your That's right. assertion. Okay, what about the energy drinks, So That's where you started us. What about them? Well, so here's what I, I learned, is that uh, a thousand different energy drink companies will send their products to Ball to test them, and Ball, in about four hours, figures out some chemistry about the beverages. They figure out the pitting potential, and then they come up with a formula to determine a beverage's corrosivity. And it just so happens that beer is mild, Coke is somewhere medium, and stuff that's salty or lemon-limey and acidic uh, is really, really corrosive. Mm. And with about 15% of energy drinks, they say, we're sorry, your stuff is so corrosive, we cannot Ah. put it in a can. And that's how they end up in the bottles. Does something being corrosive mean, however, that it's in any way bad for you? No, your stomach can handle it fine. Uh, The question is actually how the beverage interacts with the plastic on the inside of the can, and that gets pretty complicated. Does beer require a plastic lining in its cans? God, that's a great question. They kept telling me beer was made for cans and cans were made for beer. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, I like it. So apparently the proteins in beer do really good at dissolving oxygen in the can, which would start the corrosion process. And the only reason they actually line beer cans with plastic is so that the bubbles don't all propagate out immediately. Um, I feel like I read years ago that the canning process or the preservation process, they weren't cans like we have now, it was kind of some pots, some sealed pots, was actually uh, a creation of Napoleon who had his armies and found that it was very difficult and expensive and time-consuming to supply food to the front lines and so basically launched some kind of competition with a prize to come up with uh, a way to preserve food in can-like things. Do you know anything about that or anything about the history of canning? I do. If you give me a second, I'll uh, I'll pull up a poem that I love about that. You just happen to have a Napoleon canning poem at the... uh... He's a (laughs) nonfiction author. So this wasn't written until 1918, but it refers to Napoleon. Yeah. The poem goes, we can march without shoes, we can fight without guns, we can fly without wings to flap over the Huns. 
We can sing without bands, parade without banners, but no modern army can eat without canners. It's <laughs> great. That is great. Who wrote that? That was written by Colonel William Grove of the Quartermaster Corps of the U.S. Army. Wow, yeah. All right, so AJ, is there anything about Jonathan's uh, really interesting canning tales that you can tell us? I can't add any more to the corrosive idea, but... I did look up the list of names of energy drinks on Wikipedia because there are a thousand new ones every year. Here are some of my favorites. There's Venom, Urge, Shark Stimulation. Yeah, it's terrible. So, Michael, how many of those have you had? Never, none. Yeah. And I, I look by the cash register where I get my coffee and they have the one that's in an, almost a vial. Uh, it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> what, what would happen if I were to drink that? I don't know. I think we don't want to see Michael Smirconish on the energy drink. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for uh, telling us a bunch of stuff we didn't know today. Nice to talk to you. You too. Thanks. Let's welcome our final guest today on the line, I believe, is Chris Terbesi. Chris, is that you? Yes. Hello. Tell us what you do and where you do it. Well, uh, I live in Houston, Texas. Uh, my job is actually my tidbit for you. So I thought I would tell you my job title and see if you can figure out what I do. Sounds great. And my job title is a French word, a repetiteur. And as you can probably guess, that literally means repeater. Mm -hmm. So I am a professional repeater. And I'm wondering if you know what it is that I repeat. A professional repeater? Michael Smirconish? Yes. What does that bring to mind? It brings to mind a translator? Not exactly, but there is a linguistic aspect to it. A linguistic aspect. But it's aspect. not speaking, I'll say that. It's not speaking. Chris, why don't you tell us what you actually do? Okay, so I am actually a pianist, but I'm a very specific kind of pianist that works at opera companies. I go into opera stagings. Typically, it takes about two to three weeks in the U.S. for an opera company to stage an opera, but they can't afford to hire an orchestra to come in for that entire period. So the repetiteur is the pianist who comes in uh, during that time and essentially pretends to be the orchestra. And when you're staging the piece, you typically are repeating things over and over and over all day, and that's where the term comes from. Are you imitating each of the other instruments that would comprise the orchestra? Yeah, so um, actually that's sort of the field of study. We spend years uh, listening to orchestras, um, a lot of repetitors also conduct orchestras to get information about how the instruments work and then how you can kind of replicate that on the piano. Wow. Uh, the piano has this unique ability, you know, because you can play so many notes at once and there's a limitless variety of touches you can use, you can really suggest all different combinations of instruments if you're, if you're a really skilled repetitor. Okay, so now the show opens, what becomes of you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm glad you asked that because uh, if you go to the opera, you won't see me. Wow. Uh, typically, repetitors, uh, if there's any backstage music that has to happen, they'll help make that happen. Um, they may just be the assistant to the conductor and give the conductor what he needs, or sometimes they can just stay home, you know, wow. or watch. Hey, um, this is going to sound rude. I don't mean it to, but um, is the typical pianist who becomes a repetiteur a better or worse pianist than a pianist who becomes, let's say, a practice pianist? I, mean, I don't think that's rude. It's a, it's a, it's a very different thing. Um, repetitors have to have a wide variety of skills. So I would say a pianist who becomes, you know, like a concert pianist is going to be extraordinarily skilled at playing the piano. But repetitors 
Um, in addition to playing uh, rehearsals, we also have to know the languages that the singers are singing in because we help coach them on diction. So we all have to be able to speak um, at least four languages, if not more. The standard four languages are English, German, Italian, and French. So every opera singer and repetitor has to know mm. those. And then there are operas that go into stranger languages as wow. well, but I don't know any of those. Why does that duty fall to you? Right, so... Yeah, I think when people hear the term vocal coach, they probably think of a singer, uh, which I think is true in pop music. But in the classical world, the vocal coach is a pianist. Uh, and the reason for that is because in a coaching, although we do talk about things like language, we talk about things like uh, talking about the libretto or phrasing, um, also an important part of the coaching is the singer getting used to hearing the orchestra. So you need uh, a pianist in the room to to play that, and it just sort of made sense for efficiency's sake, the job developed that this would be a pianist who did this job. Wow, so interesting, and I'm so glad you called in. A.J. Jacobs' Christopher Trebesi is telling us that he is a professional repetiteur and all that comes along with that. Anything to add? Well, I loved I had no idea about repetiteurs. I, I will tell you, I did know about another obscure uh, French-named entertainment job, uh, which was that in the 1800s in France, theaters would hire shills to be in the audience and cheer for the plays. So it was like canned laughter, basically. And what was great, what I love, is the specialization because you had several different jobs. There were the rieurs who laughed at the comedies, and there were the bisseurs who would shout for the encores. There were the commissaires who would elbow the neighbors and say, this is the good part. My favorite are the pleurisies who are women who are paid good money, good francs, to weep at the sad parts (laughs) at tragedies, which is just fantastic to me. And something I think we should incorporate into shows like This Is Us. I agree. Canned weeping. Christopher, um, thanks so much for joining us. May you always find plenty of repetituring work. And thanks for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Thank you so much for having me. It's time now for the three of us to each declare who we want to win this thing. I thought all of our guests were really interesting on some level today, but I, I think we should each um, we should each pick a winner and um, put our vote where our minds are. So AJ, uh, keeping in mind the three criteria, did they tell us something we did not know? Uh, was it worth knowing and demonstrably true? Who would you pick as your winner, AJ? Well, as you say, I think they're all good, but I, I'm a sucker for mummies. I got to go with the mummies. Uh, if I had learned it in college, it would have made art history a little more interesting. <laughs> A.J. Jacobs, mummy sucker. Michael Smirkanish, what do you have to say for <laughs> Let yourself? Let me first say that I feel like I'm now equipped to win any number of <laughs> bar bets based on my time spent with both mm. of you and your guests today. Uh, I'm going to go with cooking the cat. Mm. I, uh, I've, I've got to go with that, the whole idea of, of what folks in the Afro-Peruvian community are doing pertaining to cats. Uh, is something I did not know. I learned she was an anthropologist. It had an air of legitimacy to it. So I believe it and learned a great deal as a result of it. Excellent. Um, as for my vote, I am so hung up here. I I was just transfixed by the variety today. I literally did not know about a professional repetiteur. And so the next time I go see the opera, which will probably be never because I don't really <laughs> go, but I will love to know that there's a guy like Christopher out there who's done all this preparation 
um, the corrosive energy drinks. I mean, the tidbits along the way. But Michael, I've got to I've got to side with you on the on the cat eating because it brought in elements of culture and economics and morals and so on. So um, let's give it up for Constanza Ocampo Raider, who told us how to cook your cat. Michael Smirkanish, AJ Jacobs, thank you both so much for joining us today. And to all of you, I hope we told you something you did not know in this special call-in episode. We will be back in just a few days with our season finale of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Thanks for listening. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I just looked it up, Stephen. It looks like uh, about 60% of Americans are dog people and 40% are cat people. So you just lost 40% of Uh, your audience. But when we say dog people or cat people, does that mean people who prefer to eat dog (laughs) or to own dog? You know, they don't specify on the questionnaire. So you could be right. Interesting. We got to tighten up that questionnaire.